0: You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, we come by your name to your father asking that your spirit would move among us to put to, (coughs) to put you at the center where you belong the center of this church the center of this service the center of all of our lives so God, I pray that we would uh, reorient ourselves then so that everything in our church, everything in our lives would orbit around you as the, the center, the core, the purpose, the, the weight of all that we are. So God, we pray that you would help us now as your word is opened. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, let's get our Bibles open to Matthew chapter 16. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. Uh, If you're new with us, we're called Harvest Bible Chapel. Bible's like our middle name. And uh, we are all about Jesus, therefore we're all about his word. And so we're going to spend some significant time in the word of God and it'll make a lot more sense if you have a chance to follow along. So if you didn't bring a Bible with you, just put up your hand nice and high. One of the ushers will put one into your hand. I'm a I'm thankful to have made it through the first week of September. Is anyone else thankful? And, um, and this is just such a busy uh, time of year. You know, sort of a, a, a restart. Canadians, we sort of have this second New Year's of, of, of once there's Labor Day and then hockey's on television again and back to school. and And things start to really get into motion. It's like a, it's like a restart for us. And I, I hope you had a very restful vacation and me and my family had a great time uh, together resting and uh, really excited to uh, to be starting this new ministry year uh, together. And as I've been thinking and praying about how should we start the year, what should we a focus on one of the things that God's really been doing in my life, and along with the elders, is that I need to, and we need to, do a better job of thinking long term. Thinking about this church, what do we want this church, or what are we expecting God to do in this church, and what would that look like a year from now? What would that look like at ten years from now? What would that look like twenty years from now? You see when you live in a culture that has uh, such dramatic change in seasons and, and, and has moments like September that's like a restart, life can feel a little bit like this cycle. And church can kind of feel like this cycle of, you know, September back to school and then Christmas and Easter and summer and September back to school and Christmas and Easter and summer and September back to, and it's just, you just sort of going along in the cycle and we can sort of say, well, that, hey, last year went great, hope this year is, is even, is even better. And my question is, What are we actually building towards something or are we just trying to do the same thing over and over again year after year? Are we, are we building on each and every year? Are we making progress? Are we growing? I'm not simply talking about numbers. I'm talking about the culture and the, and the way of doing things and who we are as a church. I've been thinking a lot about what do we want the youth group to look like when those babies who just got dropped off at the nursery enter high school? Do we want it to look exactly the same as it? Is? It's great right now, but do we, do we expect it to be exactly the same 15 years from now? What's the seniors ministry going to look like when I enter it? Where are we going as a church? And the more I've tried to look forward... God has been impressing upon me the importance of looking back. If we are going to have something built here at harvest that is going to last, we have to look to things that were built a long time ago and figure out how they have lasted. You see, when God builds something, he builds it to last. The church in the New Testament was built to last. And so what we're going to be doing in this series is with the intention of looking forward to where are we going and how, how will the future shape for us as a church. As we look forward, we are going to be very intentional to look back, to find principles from God's word from the early church to say this is what they did and their church lasted. Because 2,000 years later, that early church that was started in the book of Acts in Jerusalem, And that spread into Judea and Samaria. They put some things in practice. And we are still benefiting from the church that was built then. And now we are participating in the work ourselves. And so in this series, each and every Sunday, my sermon text is going to be the entire book of Acts. And at each and every week, we are going to look at one principle, whether it be a certain building material or a certain plan or a part of the blueprint or the foundation. And we're going to look at that one theme and then follow it through the entire book of Acts. So... Prayer, for instance, was how the church was built in the New Testament. We're going to look at how they prayed in the upper room in chapter 1, how they, how they prayed in Acts chapter 2 after the church was established, how they prayed in Acts 4 and the, the building they were in was, was shaking, and how they prayed and Peter was set free from prison in Acts chapter 12. We're going to follow the theme of prayer all the way. Then the, then the next week, another principle, maybe the word of God or leadership, eldership, community, all of these things following through the whole book of Acts. You're probably saying there, well, I've never, I've never heard a sermon series like that. Well, I've never given a sermon series like that. And so it's going to be new for you. It's going to be new for me. Uh, but I'm really excited to really try to figure out what is the biblical blueprint for a church that is built to last because when God builds something, he builds it to last and the early church has lasted and we are benefiting from that. We are now part of that and we don't wanna be a church that just follows fads or that is spending all of our energy on things that will just come and will go. We wanna be spending ourselves on things that will last, not just 10, 20, 30 years down the road, but spending ourselves on things that will matter in eternity Because that is what church is ultimately about. And so before we jump into the book of Acts, we're going to look at Jesus' promise, the promise that he made that I will build my church. And we're going to look at how he communicated that to his apostles, and then the apostles went and lived that out in the book of Acts. So next week we start in the book of Acts. Today we're in Matthew chapter 16. It says in Matthew 16 verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, let's just make note of this, Caesarea Philippi was a, a place that was about 40 kilometers north of Galilee where the disciples did most of their ministry. It was about as far away as here to Orangeville and so uh, way out in the sticks and, and he's, he's with them up there. Now Caesarea Philippi was a place that was built to last. It's named after Caesar. It's named after the emperor. It was built and then renovated by a guy named Philip, Caesarea Philippi. And it was these huge, massive marble structures, these temples to uh, various idols, and these, these government buildings where administration and, and, and important meetings were to take place. It was built to last. Jesus went to this very impressive place with all of the disciples, these massive marble stone structures that seem like they would be there forever, like they were built to last. If you go to Caesarea Philippi today, it's a wasteland. All the buildings toppled over, there's, there's essentially nothing there. That's an important lesson for all of us. The early church was planted in the midst of the strength of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire's gone. The church is still here. You follow church history, all of these different leaders, all of these different nations, all of these different philosophies that set themselves up in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ seem so strong, seem like they're built to last. No, the church is built to last. The church continues because Jesus said, I will build it. So it says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is, today we're going to see three things that we will need to do in order to be a church that is built to last. Here's the first one. If we're going to be a church that's built to last, we must respond to the most significant question. We must respond to the most significant question. And the question is, who is Jesus Christ? Unless our church is able to articulate who Jesus is, we will not last as a church. It's the most significant question. It is the most significant question for our church. It is the most significant question for you as an individual. There's no more. Think of all the questions you have to answer every day. Would you from? Would you like fries with that? To do you say I do? All of these different questions. Some of them you just make. An, in a, in a moment's notice, without even thinking, and, and really don't have that much effect on the rest of your life, other questions are so crucial. There's only one question that is so important that it affects what you do here on earth and it affects where you go in eternity, and that is the question, who is Jesus? And just like today, just like today where everyone has a different opinion on Jesus, everyone has a different slant, I don't know, he's a moral teacher or he started a religion or, or some sort of mystical spiritual guru... Just like everyone today has different ideas about Jesus, back in Jesus' day, people had different ideas about him. So the disciples that answer the question in verse 14 about what other people think about him, verse 14, they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And these were sort of the, the going theories about Jesus. So some people had heard him teach. They'd heard about the miracles or even seen the miracles. And they're trying to piece together who might this be. One of the theories was that he was John the Baptist. This was a theory that was started by Herod, who was one of the political leaders. One of the leaders who probably would have spent some time in Caesarea Philippi. Making important decisions. Herod had Jesus' older cousin, John the Baptist, executed. Herod was a very paranoid man. He was a guilt-stricken man. And when he heard about this person performing miracles and teaching, he was convinced in his delusional mind that John the Baptist, who he beheaded, has risen from the dead, put his head back on, and is performing all... That That was one of the theories about who Jesus was, because Herod was spreading that theory. Another theory you can see there was that Jesus was Elijah... You see, Elijah, he's this character in the Old Testament. He's a prophet. And in 2 Kings, Elijah, actually he doesn't actually die. Technically, he doesn't die. His servant Elisha is there with him, and a chariot of fire comes along, and he's carried up into heaven. And so there's sort of this expectation that Elijah never died. He's, he's up there somewhere. And, and then in the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament... Malachi, in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, makes this prophecy that, that Elijah was going to come back. And people were trying to piece together, well, who was, and people were asking John the Baptist if he was Elijah. And now people are asking Jesus if he was Elijah. And the New Testament clarifies that ultimately, that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord And so that was one of the theories. Another theory that seems a little bit out there, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, was this theory that Jesus was Jeremiah. Where would have that come from? And if you've studied your Bible closely, you'd be like, there's no prediction about Jeremiah. That's exactly right. But there was this other book, this other book that was written after the Old Testament was written. It wasn't part of the Bible. It was a book called Second Esdras. And this is what Second Esdras said. Now, Second Esdras is not in the Bible. Everyone say, not in the Bible. Okay, so this has no weight or authority at all. But this is what something, this is something that other people were reading at the time. And this is what 2nd Ezra is. This is a quote-unquote prophecy from a non-biblical book. I will send my servants, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Daniel, to help you. And so people were, were throwing out there, maybe 2nd maybe Ezra is, is, is a true book after all. And maybe that's who, maybe that's who Jesus is. That's not true. See, everyone has their theories about who Jesus is. And then Jesus narrows the question. After asking, what does everyone think about me? Now, he asks in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you, and the you is plural, who do you say that I am? And then Peter speaks up, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, speaking on behalf of the whole group, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. God. Peter here, answering on behalf of all the disciples, gives this two-part answer. This is the correct answer to the most important question anyone could ever ask you. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the Christ and the Son of God. What does does Christ mean? I've even said Jesus Christ a couple of times already today. When I was growing up, I thought, you know, Jesus Christ, that was his last name. That, you know, like Mary and Joseph Christ went over to Bethlehem and they went to the inn and they're like, last name please. And they're like, Christ, and Mary and Joseph. And like, sorry, we don't have anyone but, with the name Christ here. There's no room in the inn. Uh, that's, not, that's not, Christ is a title. It wasn't his last name. Now, Christ is a Greek word that in, is intended to translate the Hebrew word for Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. And to be anointed means to be clothed or wrapped in something. It means to have something poured all over you. And they were looking forward to this anointed one coming. That was, that's what, that was the big deal about Jeremiah and, and Elijah and, and John the Baptist, is that these characters were supposed to come to prepare the way for the anointed one. See, because people studied the book of Daniel, and in Daniel chapter 9... It says, now know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Or if you study Daniel closely, it's it's 70 70 sevens. 70 times 7 is 490. And Last winter, we spent a lot of time in the book of Nehemiah. We looked at the whole history and the importance of Cyrus about he set out a word to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. And depending on which statement and how it was made, there's a number of different ways of calculating it. But from that moment up until the time when Jesus walked on the earth was roughly, a number of different ways of calculating it, but roughly... 490 years. Everyone is expecting that right around this time, the anointed one should come. And it says here that the anointed one was supposed to be a, a prince, a ruler, a king. That's because kings in Old Testament Israel were always anointed. No anointing, no kingdom. You didn't become a king unless you were anointed. It started with Saul, and then more familiar, more familiar is David in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, rushed upon David from that day forward. David was the king. He was was a Christ. He was a Messiah because he was anointed. He wasn't the Messiah, but he was an anointed one because he was the king. Now Jesus also is a king in Luke chapter 1. It said that the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is a king. He is the anointed king. But kings weren't the only people in the history of Israel that were anointed. Prophets were also anointed. God told Elijah, before Elijah was taken up into heaven by those chariots of fire, God said, take Elisha and you shall anoint him to be prophet in your place in 1 Kings 19. In the Psalms it says, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Prophets were anointed. Isaiah himself said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And a a prophet is someone who has been anointed, called by God, oil poured on their head. So prophets are messiahs. Prophets are Christ's because they are anointed, but there's only one who is the Messiah. There is only one who is the Christ. See, Jesus walked into a synagogue one day in Luke chapter 4 He got out the book of Isaiah. It says, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Talking about Isaiah and his anointing. And Jesus said, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is the anointed king. Jesus says himself, I am the anointed prophet. And lastly, priests were anointed. In, in the book of uh, Exodus, it's, it says that, that, that they were to put on Aaron holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. And this was something that carried on throughout the generations in, Luke, in Leviticus chapter 6. It says, the priest from among Aaron's sons who was anointed to succeed him. And so priests were supposed to be anointed as well. Then Jesus himself, he's our high priest, Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And so the anointed one that Daniel 9 predicts was supposed to be the coming together of all of these things. Not just a king, but also a prophet. Not just a prophet, funny, also a priest. And so when Peter is calling Jesus Christ, and it's so funny as Christians, Jesus Christ, it just rolls off the tongue, right? Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. That statement is so full of meaning. When Peter is saying that, he's saying, Jesus, you are our king. Herod, the emperor, they're all nothing. You are the one who rules over us. Jesus, you are our prophet. When you speak, you speak the very words of God to us. And Jesus, you are our priest. You are here to make a sacrifice, to take away our sin. That's what Peter was saying to him. But it was a two-part answer. He said, you are the Christ that's full of all of that meaning. And he says, you are the son of the living God. Peter's saying, you're the Christ. You're the one that we've been waiting for. All of this expectation, 490 years of waiting, even going beyond that, ever since the days of Adam and Eve, waiting for this one who would crush the head of the serpent. You are the one. You are the Christ. But you're so much more than that, Jesus. I mean, in Matthew chapter 3, when you were baptized, heaven opened, and the Father said, this is my beloved son. I mean, you reached out and touched lepers, and rather than you getting leprosy, they were healed. And when they brought a paralyzed man to you, rather than just here, you're feeding thousands of people. You're teaching with authority. He's saying, you are the son of the living God. Yes, you are the Messiah, but you're a Messiah on terms that we never thought possible. That is the right answer to the question of who Jesus is. That he is the, that he is the Christ the king, he rules over us. He speaks the word of God because he's a prophet. And he makes a sacrifice for sin because he is priest. And he is the son of the living God, Yeah, David was a Messiah. He was, a, he was an anointed one, but he was just an earthly king. Yeah, Aaron was a Messiah. He was a, he was a Christ. He was anointed, but he was just an earthly priest. I mean, Isaiah was a great prophet. He was anointed. He was technically a Messiah, but he's not the Messiah. He's not the Christ because all those men were just men, and they lived and they died, but Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, and that makes all difference and notice how Jesus responds Know that in verse 17 Jesus answered him blessed are you listen if you know that today and you believe that in your heart you are blessed and here's why Jesus says you blessed are you Simon bar Jonah for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven If you know that today, if you believe that today, you don't know that and believe that because you figured it out. You know that and you believe that because God the Father revealed it to you by his spirit. That's a humbling thing. Peter couldn't take credit for having the right answer. And sometimes we walk around with our thick study Bible and all of our Bible answers and we're quite proud of what we know about theology. And we need to be humbled and reminded that everything that we know that is true, we know because God has revealed it to us because he's merciful and gracious. And when we're sharing our faith with others. When you're praying for your pastor or for whoever is speaking at the front, remember it's not up to them to try to convince someone or to explain it in such a way, but to recognize and understand that it is a spiritual work. It's a supernatural gift that God gives to be able to see and recognize who Jesus is and what he came to do. And then Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's the second thing we need to do if we're going to be built to last. We must remain on the most solid foundation. If we are going to be a church that is built to last, we make sure we need to make sure that the building that is happening is being built on the most solid foundation. And we're going to see we're going to see in a moment how easy it is to slip off, how easy it is to start to build away from the ultimate true foundation where Jesus promised to build his church. So notice how Jesus calls them a different name in verse 17 than he does in verse 18. In verse 17, he calls him Simon Bar Jonah. Bar Jonah uh, just means son of Jonah. So there's a bit of a play here. Peter says, "Jesus, you're the son of the living God." And then Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, "You're Simon, son of Jonah." But then he calls him Peter. And this is this is sort of just an interesting dynamic between Jesus and Peter's relationship. The first moment Jesus met Peter, this is how the conversation went down. John chapter 1, this is their first meeting. It's talking about uh, Peter's brother, Andrew. It says, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. What's that mean again? The anointed one. We found the one that we're looking for, that Daniel prophesied about. It says he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, the son of John or or Bar-Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The first words out of Jesus' mouth when he's talking to Simon is, I'm changing your name. Just imagine how weird that would be. Imagine bumping into someone in in the foyer and And you're you're like, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Yeah, my name's Jim. And they're like, Jim, no, you're not Jim. You're Woodface. From now on, I'm just going to call you Woodface. Is that okay, Woodface? Hey, have you met Woodface over here? That's essentially what Jesus does. Now, Cephas was was a, it was a known name. It's based on Aramaic. It means rock. That's why the translation here, Being written in Greek, it's Cephas, which means Peter. And Peter is the Greek word for rock. So now going back to Matthew 16, Jesus re-emphasized. Remember how I renamed you? Remember that whole Cephas thing, that Peter thing? Jesus is saying, listen, I have a plan for you, Peter. From the day I met you, I've had a plan for you. You didn't know what it meant all those years or months when we first met. But I called you Cephas, I called you Peter for a reason because I knew what was going to happen. I knew, I knew Peter that there were going to be some ups and there were going to be some downs. And right now this is definitely an up because you just answered correctly to the most important question. But Jesus had a plan for Peter. You need to understand that. Jesus has a plan for you. From the moment he called you to himself, he has had a plan and a purpose. And yes, there's some ups and yes, there's some downs and yes, some things come out of your mouth that shouldn't, but sometimes some things come out of your mouth that should and God has a plan for all of that. And so Jesus says, you are Peter. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. What Jesus does here is he uses... A literary technique known as pun. A puns, the most basic form of a pun shows up in humor. If you don't know what a pun is, a pun is a joke that a dad or a grandfather tells and he laughs and everyone else moans. Alright, why do you need to not bring a lunch to the beach? Because you can eat the sandwiches there. You don't need to bring a lunch because you can eat the sand which is there, which sounds like sandwiches there. Dad laughs, everyone moans. But puns are used all throughout literature in the ancient world and even in contemporary world. And Jesus here is using a pun. Cephas, Peter sounds like rock. And so, Jesus is saying, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, we as Protestant evangelical believers in Jesus Christ, we have difficulty with what Roman Catholics teach about Peter. Roman Catholics believe in something called the papacy. They believe that Peter went on to become the main elder or bishop or leader in the church at Rome. And that he had authority over all of the other churches. Whoever's in charge of the Church of Rome is in charge of all all the rest of the Catholic Church. That's why it's called the Roman Catholic Church. And then the idea is that after Peter died, whoever took over for Peter, he was the guy who was in charge. And then whoever took over for him and the present Pope today, the idea in Roman Catholic teaching is that the present-day Pope is really just carrying on the secession. He is, he's in the same role that Peter was in way back then, and therefore everyone needs to listen to him. And that when he speaks, he speaks for God. Now that's not true. That's not in the Bible. And sometimes in our desire to, to distance ourselves from the mistake or the errors that Roman Catholics have made, we try to downplay Peter. When Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, he was talking to Peter. We, we, don't need to, we don't need to downplay Peter. Peter does a good enough job downplaying himself. But Peter did. We're going to find as we read the book of Acts, he played a significant foundational role among the other apostles as a key leader. He was the first one to stand up and preach in Acts chapter 2. That's pretty foundational. He was sent out when people were becoming Christians in Samaria. That's a pretty foundational leadership role. He's the one who led Cornelius, the first full Gentile, to the Lord. That's pretty foundational. And so we don't need to be afraid of saying that Peter, in some small way, was a small rock. And and God did use him because God did have a plan for him. But there's something far bigger going on here. You see, because... Even the next couple of verses are going to show us that when Peter was declaring that Jesus is the Christ and the son of the living God, he was acting like a rock that the church could be built on. When he wasn't, he wasn't acting like that rock. He wasn't fixed on that foundation. The ultimate foundation is the declaration. The true rock is indeed the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's something that Peter declared, that's something that the apostles declare, and God has built his church and built it to last, and that in our church will last as long as we continue to declare that as well. So we don't need to take away from the important role that Peter played. We do the same thing at Christmas time with Mary. Catholics make all kinds of mistakes and errors about who Mary is who she was back then and who she is now. That doesn't mean that we don't teach about the incredible example that Mary gave for all of us in obedience and submission to the Lord. But Peter, Peter lets us off the hook because listen, we can, we can try to lift Peter up as, as high as we want, but he'll just come crashing down. I mean, the next couple of verses are an example. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul had to publicly rebuke him. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter eight, it's not Peter who decided to go to Samaria, the other apostles sent him. In Acts chapter 11, Peter's filling out a report in triplicate, having to give a presentation to be accountable for his actions. doesn't exactly sound like he's the one in charge. He, He was one of the other apostles. Even look at the way that Peter wrote about himself. Second Peter chapter one, Simeon or Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't introduce himself as, yeah, my name's Peter, and Peter means rock, and it's all built on me. All this, all this is about me. That's, that, that's not how he starts. He says, I'm a servant. I'm, I'm an apostle like the other apostles. How about in 1 Peter when he's talking about how the church is supposed to be built? Notice what's absent from this statement. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's missing from that statement about building the church? Peter's missing. If Peter thought he was the pope, if he thought he was the one that the church, that would have been a good time for him to explain it. And by the way, as we're all living stones being built up, I am am the foundation. He doesn't say it. How about when he's talking to other elders in 1 Peter 5? So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Not I exhort the elders among you because I am the foundation, because I am the rock and I'm here to boss all y'all around. That's not what he does. He says, I'm a fellow, I'm equal. And so we don't need, we don't need, we don't need to downplay the role that Peter played because Peter does it himself. And also, when we focus so much on the rock, the rock isn't the most important statement Jesus makes in this verse. He says, yeah, yeah, you're Peter, and on this rock, uh," he says, I will build my church. Peter's building nothing. It's Jesus that builds the church. And we need to remember that. He says, I will build my church. And when Jesus builds something, he builds it to Last. And so we need to keep that in mind. Jesus says, I will build my church. You know, we, we talk like, you know, Harvest Bible Chapel, it's my church. It's, it's our church. And there's nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, this isn't our church. This isn't the church that belongs to us. This is His church. And we all belong to Him. And we're not involved in building. He is the one who is doing the building. And so what Jesus is saying here is that I will build my church on the rock. And as long as you depend on me, as long as you recognize that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the Christ, as long as you recognize that I'm the son of the living God, then my church will be built. That is the foundation that we cannot come away from. Jesus also had the other apostles in mind for sure because in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter one, sorry, Revelation chapter 21 verse four, when the new when the new heavens and the new earth are revealed and the city of Jerusalem comes down from heaven, there's foundations, foundation stones with people's names on it, and there isn't just one foundation, there's 12, and every name of the apostles is there in the book of Revelation. Peter was not set apart to be the He played a key role, just like the apostles played a key role, just like we today can play a role in allowing Christ to build the church through us when we focus on him then he says in verse, oh, sorry, this is the best part. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We're living in a world that is changing so radically. We're living in a world where we're face to face every time we listen to the news with such unbelievable evil all around us. Whether it be with the, the moral choices that people are making or the or the. atrocious acts that are made of quote-unquote warfare, which is just savage barbarism all around our world. It's easy for us to think that we as the church are on defense. That we are somehow, if we're going to be built to last, we need to sort of huddle in and hunker down and batten down the hatches because it's getting rough. No, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We need to understand that Satan is not on offense, Satan is on defense. And every attack from Satan is a counterattack. And the church is not on defense, the church is on offense, and we're winning. We are winning. It may not get reported on the news, but it's right here in black and white. The words of the Son of God, we are winning. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell are going down. There's people who are on their way there who are going to spend eternity in death and separated from God, but we're busting through those gates and we're rescuing people and we are winning. And so we need to understand that. Jesus says, I will build my church. Then in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, Roman Catholics picture this as Jesus just giving Peter the keys and say, hey man, you just take it from here, you just drive. You just open the door, you shut the door, you let in whoever you want to let in. You decide who gets on the bus, and the Pope decides who gets on the bus for all the generations going on. Listen, that is not true. This isn't some personal authority that's been given to Peter. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 18... The same thing about having the keys is, is spoken to all of the disciples. And it's not spoken in the church building aspect. It's spoken in the context of church discipline. And what we can take away from here is as we, as we, as we remain on the solid foundation, we need to understand that what we're doing is very, very serious. Like take a look at the, at, at the logo for this series again. It's it's, it's talking about becoming a church that is built to last on earth and into eternity. We're not messing around here. We can't be wasting our time on things that will not last in eternity. And we have been given, as the church, we have been given the keys the keys to open the door and invite people and say, heaven is open, Christ has made a way, follow him. And we've also been given the, the authority to warn people and say, this door is not always going to be open. And we also, it's a very serious thing in Matthew 18, church discipline is a very serious thing to take someone who's a part of the church and to reason with them and level with them and show them this is what God's word says and for them to say, I'm not going to follow God's word. I am not going to come under the authority of what God's word says. I am not going to listen to the elders. I'm not going to listen to my Christian friends. And for the church then to say, then you're not among us. That is a serious thing. And that's what Jesus is getting at. We want to be a church that is built to last on earth and into eternity. That's why every conversation, that's why every service, that's why every sermon, that's why every small group meeting, that's why every follow-up phone call, that's why every coffee with a friend is so important because it's so serious. Because we're building something by the grace of God that won't just last here on earth but will last on into eternity. We want to be built to last. We must respond to the most significant question. We must remain on the most solid foundation, and then, thirdly, we must resist the most subtle temptation. We must resist the most subtle temptation. In verse twenty, it says, "Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ." And Jesus, remember, he was—he he had a plan. And things were to go according to his plan. And so he told his disciples, listen, mom's the word right now. As far as me being the Messiah and the son of God, that's a, a need to know basis thing. Right now you guys need to know, but no one else needs to know. So you don't need, you're, there's going to be plenty of time to declare that. When we get to the book of Acts, they can't stop declaring that. But at this particular time, Jesus said, just keep it among yourselves. Then in verse 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So Jesus is outlining the ultimate plan. And notice how he says that, the, that he must go to Jerusalem. And Jesus wasn't warning them this might happen or this probably will happen. No, Jesus says this must happen, because yes, he is the Messiah, and yes, he is the son of the living God, and, and But he came for a purpose. He came to give his life for us. He came to die as a substitute for sin so that all of our sin could be put on him and all of his righteousness could be given to us so that by him dying for us, we could live forever and have eternal life. And then notice what happens in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What is the most subtle temptation? The most subtle temptation is to try to do things for God in the power of man. To try to build the church with your own power. Manly, world centered, humanistic principles. And it's so subtle. I I just think, I just think about Peter in this moment. Think about how affirmed and confident and just filled with joy and enthusiasm he would have been he just gave the right answer to the most important question on earth he just said it you're the christ the son of the living god jesus is like bing he's like yeah and then the next words out of his mouth a little bell doesn't go off but the voice of his savior saying get behind me Satan that is sobering and God forgive us if we think that because things have gone well here at Harvest Bible Chapel for the last six years that somehow we can just coast through the seventh and don't think that because small group went great last week and think that it was because of you that now you can go to small group and it's it's going to be the same. Don't think that because you just gave one, per- one friend a good piece of advice over coffee, don't think that the next thing you're about to say is going to be particularly helpful. This situation here is just such a sobering reminder of how subtle, how easy it is to just step off of that f- solid foundation and to step into the quicksand, the muck and mire of human wisdom. Peter's intentions, no doubt, would have been good, right? Jesus, I would never let you die. I would never let that happen. Sometimes, so often, we, we love people, but we don't, we don't do what's actually the most loving for them. We, we have misguided, and we can't trust That everything that we say is going to be the right thing. I've experienced that so often in my life. You say one thing that's just right on point and super helpful. And then another thing you just pray that people would forget. But people haven't forgot what Peter said. And it's written here in God's word. And it's living and active and it's speaking to us today. And this just should drive us to humble dependence and obedience on the Lord. Remember how Jesus loves puns and that sort of thing. Verse 23, he turned to him and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance. In the ESV, there's a footnote there. The word hindrance means stumbling block. So the rock that was acting like this foundation on which Jesus could build the church now is this rock that's standing in his way trying to trip him along the path to the cross. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Russell Moore said, you know that a church is satanic, not when you see dark robes and goat blood and mysterious sacrifices. He says a church is satanic when it steps off of the foundation of Jesus as the Christ, as the son of the living God and starts to focus on the things of man. Satan doesn't have his way in a church just by dividing the leadership or bringing about immorality among the people or all of these other problems. That's not the only way. That's not the ultimate way that Satan wants to attack the church. And remember, it's a counterattack. He's on defense. We are on offense. Satan's main attempt in attacking the church is to try to get us to stop emphasizing the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. Peter says, let's try another angle. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The moment that we get off the track of proclaiming who Jesus is and what he came to do is the moment where we have in mind the things of man. And Satan's totally content with that. He won't continue to ravage and destroy the church. He'll be like, well, they're they're no threat anymore. They're not storming my gates anymore. They're not rescuing people from sin, hell, and death anymore. They have in mind the things of man. And it's so subtle. It's subtle for us personally as individuals. It's subtle for us corporately as a church. And so wherever God takes us, we want to be a church that is built to last. We we want to be a church that is nimble and flexible and open-minded on minor issues, but we want to be a church that is rock solid in conviction without compromise on the issues that matter. And the most important issue it's who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. As long as we focus on that, we will be a church that is built to last because we will be a church that is built by Jesus Christ. And so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for sending your Son who is the Christ and your son, you are the living God. We thank you for your spirit who inspired Matthew to write these words. And God, I pray, I pray, God, that until you return, God, that this would be a church that would last, that would be resilient, that would be strong, that would be, that would be courageous, and that would thrive, Lord, in the generations to come. God, we do pray that you would come quickly. And I pray that what we do in the church would have a sense of urgency about it, would have a sense of eternity about it as the church is built. And God, if there is anyone here today who doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they would repent, that they would believe that Jesus died for them on the cross. And God, I pray that we would be a church that is found to be faithful Faithful in doing what you've called us to do, but careful not to do it in our own strength and according to our own wisdom. But that we would be faithful in doing what you've called us to do and faithful on relying on you. So God, we pray for your grace to help us in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.